Welcome to the 461st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian of Latin America and disasters, Mark Healy. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of March 9th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In Argentina, 126,901 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. In Brazil, 653,134 people have died from the disease. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Fernando Solanas, Argentine filmmaker and politician, dies at 84. This was written by Daniel Politi and appeared in the New York Times December 4th, 2020. When Argentina's Senate debated the legalization of abortion in 2018, Fernando Solanas, then a senator, argued fervently in favor of the proposed law in part by declaring that sexual pleasure was a fundamental human right. The bill was rejected, but Mr. Solanas' speech and its unusual argument quickly went viral in a nation bitterly divided by the issue. Mr. Solanas was a consistent voice on the left, often speaking out in favor of human and environmental rights, whether in politics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mr. Solanas was a consistent voice on the left, often speaking out in favor of human and environmental rights, whether in politics or in his other life as a filmmaker whose movies and documentaries marked a new era in Latin American cinema. He died of complications of COVID 19 on November 6, 2020, in Paris. Argentina's foreign ministry said in a statement he was 84. Fernando Ezequiel Solanas was born on February 16, 1936, in Olivos, Buenos Aires province. His father, Hector, was a surgeon, and his mother, Maria Julia Zaldaragia, was a painter and poet. Mr. Solanas briefly studied law before attending the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts. He graduated in 1962 and went into advertising. That work allowed him to raise enough money to make La Hora de los Hornos, The Hour of the Furnaces, a three-part documentary about neocolonialism and political violence that he directed with Octavio Titino. Running four hours and 20 minutes in all, the film was released in 1968. Described as a unique film exploration of a nation's soul by Vincent Canby in the New York Times in 1971, the movie made a splash abroad, but was officially banned in Argentina, which was then under military rule, although it received clandestine screenings. Mr. Solanas and Mr. Giardino founded the influential Grupo Cine Liberación, the liberation film group, and went on to coin the term third cinema to describe a burgeoning Latin America film movement with a revolutionary undercurrent and an ambition to break free from production standards set in Hollywood and Europe. 
After receiving death threats, Mr. Solanas went into exile in Europe in 1976 as a brutal military dictatorship took hold. He returned to Argentina in 1983 and went on to film some of his best known work, including Sur, for which he won the Best Director Prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 1988. Solanas was actually shot six times in the legs. The perpetrators were never caught, but he blamed Carlos Menem, the president at the time, whom he bitterly opposed. Two years later, his formal political career began when he won a seat in the Chamber of Deputies, Argentina's lower house of Congress. Mr. Solanas, known by the nickname Pino, returned to filmmaking after his four-year term ended. He made another foray into politics with a run for the presidency in 2007, but he garnered less than 2% of the vote. He went back to the lower house of Congress in 2009 and was elected a senator in 2013. He was appointed ambassador to UNESCO last year. Obituary of Fernando Solanas, who died in November 2020 of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Mark Healy. Mark Healy is an urban, environmental, and political historian of Latin America, and also a disaster scholar the author of The Ruins of the New Argentina, which appeared with Duke Press in 2011. He's currently writing a book about the environmental and political history of water in the drylands of Argentina, as well as a project about the transnational political history of housing and development. He has taught at New York University, the University of Mississippi, UC Berkeley, and since 2011, the University of Connecticut, where he is now the head of the history department. Mark Healy, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on COVID Calls. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. It's been, this has been a, a great space of conversation and I'm glad to, to join it. It's kind of you to say. Let me start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and how it's looking there pandemic-wise. So I'm calling from Storrs, Connecticut, uh, the campus of the University of Connecticut, uh, snowbound, which feels a little bit like Narnia right now. Uh, kind of a one last uh, snowstorm, a sort of, you know, of an endless winter, um, you know, a little more lovely, uh, perhaps, than, than at other moments. Um, and, and on the tail end of, of course, we hope, uh, of at least this phase of our endless pandemic. Um, we're, you know, in, in the, the moment that much of the U.S. is living now, where we've decided that the pandemic is more or less over, uh, and so this past week, uh, the state of Connecticut has the, the governor lifted. He had some time ago lit, allowed kind of devolved towns, whether there would be any uh, mask mandates uh, and had kept a sort of statewide uh, mask mandate on schools. And he lifted that this past uh, week. And then all of the schools very promptly uh, lifted their mask mandate. Uh, cases are dropping so far, but. Uh, you know, we we shall see how that goes. Here on campus, we've uh, we've actually been quite successful. You know, within the you know w w for some definitions of success, um, and I think compared to some other institutions, our 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 leaders have been fairly astute in uh, protecting students and faculty in the broader community. Uh, and have had pretty, we have, uh, we've had a vaccine mandate this year. We've had very few cases. We did, uh, we were, you know, like many places, we fairly early on developed our own wastewater surveillance system, which has been very effective. 
uh, and all through especially last academic year when there were a higher number of cases uh, that was used to kind of monitor intervene. So it's it's been uh, a relatively placid, you know, certainly not unaffected with a, a great deal of tragedy all around us corner of the world um, in our, our kind of rural part of uh, northeastern Connecticut. But Connecticut, Connecticut, of course, has been a fairly hard hit state, especially early on. Um, and, uh, you know, continues to be, uh, you know, even now, a number of the cities uh, have some the places that have kept mass mandates are uh, a number of Connecticut cities where uh, you have uh, populations of of a higher population of Latinx and African-American students, especially, um, and still lower levels of community uh, vaccination, you know, largely because of kind of continuing access issues of the kind of things that we know and, and have been talked about here and have been talked about extensively and, and yet not yet fully effectively acted upon. I think that, well, thank you for that, Mark. And I think people may have forgotten the how harsh it was there in Connecticut in the early days of the pandemic in the United States. And I remember, if I'm not mistaken, it was a, one of the towns in Connecticut was one of the first places they actually, it almost had a cinematic quality to it. They talked about isolating the whole town. And do you, and which, do you remember which city that was? Because Ooh, the, the notion of that was that, and we look back at that now, I'm like, you're going to isolate a town in Connecticut and you're going to stop the pandemic? <laughs> I mean, I think that was one of the coastal places too, right? I mean, a lot of this was yeah. Fairfield County, right? There's places closest yeah. into, to, to New York. Right. Um, and yeah, I, but, but it's, it's an interesting and revealing kind of moment, right? Because it's also sort of consistent with the role that particularly that part of Connecticut has played in relationship to the greater New York metropolitan area. I mean, it's, there are lots of urban centers, of course, and it's a very heavily now uh, relatively densely populated area. But it's a densely populated area whose, whose density is sort of premised on a lot of suburban communities, right? Um, and significant levels of segregation and, and kind of, you know, zoned for uh, a certain suburban imaginary. And so the idea that you could kind of contain things completely is entirely consistent with you know, that kind of mode mm. of land use and local governance. Um, it's interesting to think, you know, to think about that, the kind of the politics of, of federalism and sort of devolution of, of authority and all of this. Right. I mean, it just seems especially um, cynical almost at this point. Right. The way that uh, in, in some of these recent decisions, sort of the government the state deciding that they're not setting a state mandate means that immediately all the local uh, municipalities are subject to great pressure to, to right. make changes. Um, it's just, it's, it's striking, you know, this, this whole question throughout all of this of kind of the scale of the community, like what is, you know, mm -hmm. what is the way of intervening to protect the community? Who is your community? You know, right. Um, and how we've, the, how kind of impoverished our imagination I think remains about a lot of those questions. Let me stay with that for a second. You and I have bonded over the fact that, well, you're a department head right now. I was a department head at Drexel University, where I was previously for eight years. And I was department head there when this pandemic broke out. And talk about federalism, institutional federalism, <laughs> and the devolution of responsibility. I mean, and I don't blame anybody where there was a lot of sense making going on. But, you know, to get these emails... Where I was, where department heads were supposed to be making decisions about which staff should come in and not come in, as if we would be reading the CDC reports and and making these decisions. Eventually, some standardized procedures emerged, and I would say Drexel did quite well in terms of taking care right. of its community, particularly in a dense urban environment. And um, 
So it's, I'm not being critical of them per se, but that first month, all of a sudden, I was like, I never thought this is what a department head had to do. <laughs> right. It, you know, because you're just you're 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 operating as and it's interesting to think about it, you know, as a disaster scholar, too, because it's it's you've become the first responder uh, yeah, and it's mayor. following. Yeah, you've become the mayor and you're the sort of <laughs> you're, you're the authority figure. And therefore, people kind of resort to you, even though you are, you know, perhaps marginally better informed <laughs> at best. Right. Uh, than those around. I mean, I. We, I don't know what your sense of this was. I mean, this, you know, one thing that was helpful about the, that role in all of this was I certainly had a sense, well, for a long time in this, right, of, you know, kind of what is the, what's our purpose in all of this? You know, like, how are we going to be able to help? You know, we make donations, you sort of, but you're kind of on lockdown for a while and you're kind of, connected with this broad process, but we're not health professionals. We can't take action on those things. You know, we're kind of helping out with mutual aid projects or whatever. But um, the sense that, that I mean, I felt a real responsibility, like, okay, well, we're protecting our people. Like, this is this is a group of people for whom I am responsible. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to do my very best to figure out, you know, how to help them navigate this. And that was exhausting. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, in some ways, helpful, right? In the sense of of giving some sense of focus within this kind of you know endless doom scrolling and you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know other other projects that that people maybe got up to uh, in the first couple of uh, months of the pandemic. I actually think that's um, not to place you and I under the microscope, but I mean, there's a lot of good sociology of disaster that shows you know in in, the, yep. in, the, in that sort of acute phase of a disaster. If people don't have a, a some sort of a governmental organizational structure, they'll build one because it's important that people have a role uh, in that. So I guess we're talking about the, <laughs> yeah. the good and the bad of being a department head as the and this is a, a little segment that we will eventually extract. And this is just for the department heads out there. And I know a lot of them who've dealt with who've dealt with this. So thanks for talking about that. I, I wanted to ask you also to, if you could share a memory. Um, yeah. Outside of that role of this pandemic for you. So I have I have two, I mean, you know, infinite number, right? I mean, what you know, the 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 one uh I guess advantage, right, of our placement is that we were we've always been able to go outside. So uh, you know, this has been a time of a great deal of hiking and biking and kind of solitude through the, the Connecticut countryside. Um <clears throat> I had but but two things. One, a kind of frenzy. Uh, it so happened that right in right around uh, this time, you know, two two years ago, uh, we had uh, I had a, a project on a digitization uh, uh, of community archives project with some with some colleagues in Argentina, and we brought together some digital stuff from here, and and we brought up to two colleagues up from Argentina. Um, we'd gotten some funding and we were going to have a kind of a couple of days to get together and brainstorm and do grant proposals and so forth. So they got here. We spent a day of just tremendous brainstorming. And towards the end of the day, <laughs> we get this email that said, oh, by the way, Argentina is closing its airspace to all flights in 48 hours. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, this brainstorming turned into primarily a brainstorming of how in the world are we going to get them back in time and, you know, what flights might there be and so forth. So this very, you know, kind of low key, uh, absurdist version of 
you know, a, a sort of movie plot of sort of racing against time. And, and of course, it's an absurd race against time because, I mean, as we know, like with all of those the travel bans and so forth that were, you know, they, they, they partly helped spread the thing because, <laughs> right. but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it was, so we had this, this sort of brainstorm, kind of a, like an hour of walking around the woods and then like running around like crazy, trying to, you know, calling uh, travel agents and so forth. This kind of last frenzied moment of connection before the kind of larger links of of, the, of our interconnected world broke off into a new configuration, um, and they both got back, you know, within kind of two or three hours before. <laughs> well, went down in Argentina, and then actually went into a fair, an extremely hard lockdown, and, and did not uh, receive uh, international planes for several months afterwards. I mean, there were lots of people who were who were actually stranded abroad for months. Uh, so it was good that we did it, um, but it was it was it was a very strong moment of transition in all of this, right? Feeling like we're kind of frenzied, and then oh, you know, it, it's accomplished. So we breathe out, and then okay, well, yeah, actually, we're in a we're in a pandemic now. Yeah. <laughs> like, nothing nothing to particularly celebrate about that achievement. That's a, that story aligns with others uh, I've heard. Thank you for sharing it about just the experience that people had. Some who were unaware of what was about to happen, moving through airports. And then finding themselves, you know, leaving one continent and arriving in another, literally to a different experience. But there is a sort of a Argo quality in what you're just describing, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. um, can we make it out? And then you make it out. And that, that, that jolt of adrenaline is something I guess people felt in, in many different ways. And for some people, it was going to the grocery store for the last time, or it was being in their office for the last time and shoveling books into a bag or whatever it is so going into a period of the unknown yeah but it, but it, it suggested that like i mean in, in the kind of cinematic version you you get you get through across the threshold and then in your there's you're in the space of you're free. You know, achievement relaxation but in fact no you're in the space of like Diving great headlong. unknowing and pandemic tragedy yeah. and you know enormous complexity and and emotional trauma right and not and not only emotional trauma let me remind, yeah, absolutely. Let me remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to historian of disasters and Latin America, Mark Healy, today. And I want to dive into your work, but let me just ask a, a question to get some of the landscape established here. I read some numbers at the top. The numbers are undercount, certainly. This pandemic has been terrible in Latin America and in South America. Yeah. Why? Well, I think you, it... <clears throat> It, it, the, you know, in, in this piece that, that Ed Young, right, uh, had in the Atlantic this week, really kind of summarizing the sort of state of uh, the lamentable state of things as we're turning to another direction and kind of attempting dangerously to overlook the lessons learned here, you know, had, had a, some great lines about the ways that disaster kind of spreads down through the fractures of society, right, that, that, the, that the pandemic disease does. Uh, and so a lot of it is that, right? I mean, that, that, and it, and it also, I think, uh, was a particular conjunction in many Latin American countries between kind of eroded forms of political responsibility and effectiveness of the state, uh, a a certain perhaps overzealous drive for hard lockdowns, kind of clear performativity of control, uh, combined with the fact that. Uh, you know, many Latin American economies, Argentina, you know, a little bit less than others, but all Latin American economies on some level have extremely high levels of informality. 
and so no matter what mechanism the government uh, governments would establish for kind of connecting with people, for subsidizing those who are at home, for kind of covering uh, costs of you know those who are laid off temporarily, the fact that so many people were off the books in various ways meant that the, there were very limited efficacy of those efforts. I mean, you know, different countries made different efforts. They found some strategies, but you just had this this sort of dual a government governments that were striving for a kind of vision of order and an attempt to replicate some things that were happening internationally that kind of looked like public health, along with this sort of incredibly powerful structural forces moving, pushing to undermine that by people, you know, who needed to work and need to get beyond that. And, and so uh, that I think was, was sort of fundamental. That clash was fundamental to why the disease uh, spread and then that contributed to kind of a you know this ongoing crisis of legitimacy, which has only really deepened, uh, I think, in in most Latin American countries. You know, we've seen uh, a number of presidential, uh, I mean, Peru most famously, but you've seen you know several governments fall, uh, you know, enormously high levels of a, a really a kind of very broad protest movements in various places, particularly in Colombia. Um, and even governments that, like Argentina uh, or Chile to a degree initially, that seemed like they were having a relatively effective response, um, have you know been left with this really catastrophic uh, outcomes in ways that they still haven't quite reckoned with, right? I mean, the, the thing that's really striking to me uh, in, in in Argentina or talking with with friends and with colleagues is just how. I mean, this is this is just such a vast scale catastrophe, and the kind of national conversation of it somehow has still not really reckoned with that. Um, political leadership certainly has not, uh, and that disjuncture is, uh, I think, fundamental to what continues to kind of power uh, this on to new new levels of uh, you know problems. I mean, there there are lots of ways in which Latin America did rise. Um, to meet the challenge, I mean, countries like like Argentina and Chile, and surprisingly Brazil, that had some forms of universal healthcare, mm-hmm. did better did better than the U.S. on various fronts, for instance. Um, but you still have this this kind of enormous fracturing uh, around these, and a, and a kind of lack of visibility, and a, and a in some ways a, a kind of loss of some lessons that had been learned in public health beforehand um, that have to be relearned again. So. How useful is it to place these countries in in relief? I mean, particularly I'm thinking of, you know, to put Argentina and Chile and Brazil in one conversation. Is it even possible to, to do that when we think about, you know, COVID and COVID response? I mean, this has been on my mind a lot recently, thinking about sort of the getting beyond the national frame to talk about COVID, but holding the region somehow. So less than a continent, but more than a nation to try to do some right. um, cross-border thinking. It, because because I think that, I think it's important for a lot of reasons. One, because it opens the sort of environmental imaginary and also supply chain you <laughs> yeah. know, understanding. But it also helps capture the uh, indigenous experience and the non-human experience in important ways that we will just never get to if we're focused on, oh, this is the experience of Chile, this is the experience of Argentina, for example. Right. No, I think that that's true. Uh, I think that one thing that's, that, that's striking, though, is the degree to which people, to which 
each of the conversations really focused things nationally. Like, so the, the kind of comparison with the neighboring country and what they were doing, what was happening there, what wasn't happening there as a kind of powerful weapon for local de debates and disputes was so deep in all these. So, so even though the, the actual strategies were quite different and the outcomes were often significantly different, the fact that people kind of insisted on making those national comparisons uh, was itself, uh, you know, a kind of a key element of how this played out um, and, and a key element of kind of local disputes, you know, in, in, in interesting and folkloric ways, right? I mean, Argentina, uh, Chile uh, did a lot of its vaccinations with uh, Chinese vaccine, um, <clears throat> Which was which was interesting. Argentina uh, with and Brazil to a degree early on with a Russian vaccine, and uh, that had a whole kind of politics to it within the mm -hmm. within the national context of. It, so it's it you know the 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 supply chain stuff also was was a big topic of conversation. I mean, Argentina like uh, like South Africa and, and India and some other countries has capacity to, to to manufacture things and is now doing the Russian one under. Um, and, and making components of what part of Moderna, I think, hmm. um, under under license. Um, so there was just all of these really interesting things about kind of prior histories and dreams of industrialization and the role that science might play and and what the kind of geopolitics of all this was that that played heavily into discussions of what would seem like a kind of more mundane thing about, okay, let's do what we can to get vaccines at arms. No, it was never just about that. It was also about like, what's our vision for, uh, what's our role in the global scene? Uh, what's our vision for, what's the kind of political role of the pharmaceutical industry? Um, you know, are the Russians conspiring to poison us all? Right. Uh, why is the government not making a deal with, um, uh, particularly with Pfizer? Uh, and Pfizer, as, as I'm sure you followed, right, Pfizer had followed very, very aggressive <laughs> negotiating tactics with many Latin American countries, which which yeah. felt a lot like kind of a, an old uh, story of the IMF and so forth that um, helped deter that. So it, it was striking to see all of the, you know, even even just focusing on the kind of national context brought in so many of those comparative uh, and uh, supply chain questions. Uh, tied to these kind of questions of national destiny. It was never about just kind of serving and helping local communities. It was always tied in with these kind of larger questions about what our what our national project is um, and, and who we have solidarity with. So you are the author of The Ruins of the New Argentina, which came out in 2011, and a uh, great book. And I, actually, I've been asking historians particularly, when I get a chance to talk to them about disaster books, if they see that work somehow differently now through through COVID, not to rewrite the work, but you know maybe parts of it that that look different to you now. And I know so I want to ask you to talk about the book a little bit, and then mm -hmm. how you how you see that history of that 1944 earthquake in Argentina somehow through the prism of COVID. Yeah. So okay. So first, a kind of uh, funny morbid maybe but funny a side note of this which is one of the figures who who played a significant role in the book who was a conservative intellectual a, a jurist um and uh a catholic uh militant who had been a kind of political figure was a judge at the time of the earthquake um and ended up eventually becoming a, a senator and was kind of a key observer and and uh 
actor on various sides during this. Um, in the late year of 1944, he spent the last half of 1944, his, his, his court was basically closed. And so he spent kind of in the mornings, he would go in and do some cases. This is sort of six months after the earthquake. In the morning, he would go in and do some work and he'd you know, kind of hear an occasional case. In the afternoons, he went home and with his entire city collapsed around him, uh, he sat down to write an 800-page text called The Structure of the State. <laughs> and so I always thought that that was kind as, of As one does after as a major does. disaster. Yeah. I always, yeah. So, so one, one thing is I always thought that was kind of funny. And, uh, you know, and I have a kind of, I mean, I appreciated it because it enabled me to sort of read his interventions in the various disputes of the day uh, and then the kind of shape of the city and nation that were emerging from the ruins against this kind of theoretical text that he was writing that, you know, supposedly sort of set out the larger vision. And, and I have some sardonic kind of reference to it in the, in the book uh, about, you know, who would do such a thing. Um, but let's just say I have a much better sense of who would do such a thing now, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem quite as absurd. Uh, and so there, there is a sense in which having lived through this kind of experience gives you a different sympathy or a different uh, sense of what the kind of possibilities of different actors are. Um, I think also, you know, this experience, like the thing that we we're talking about at the, at the top of our own experience as, you know, sense making in this uncertain circumstance mm. uh, and trying to uh, forge a path forward and trying to sort of gather, you know, the folks around you and your allies and so forth to kind of suggest, okay, this is a thing that we need to do. We don't need to do that. And here's how we're going to best protect our people. And here's the sort of vision that we're going to produce out of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that was obviously, that sense-making was a central thing that I wanted to get into in the book. And then and I looked at the sort of process of reimagining and rebuilding community after this disaster and the ways that that led to these kind of broader political transformations. Um, so I wouldn't say that that was unexpected, but it, but it gave me much greater <laughs> insight into how those things played out um, and the complexities of those tasks. Uh, I suppose... On some level, maybe in, in the writing, I was maybe more cautious and empathetic than in some ways I kind of remembered the writing being. <laughs> like I thought I'd come down harder on these people. I went back and I looked and I was like, oh, actually I didn't. And so <laughs> it, it was interesting to kind of return to the point mm -hmm. that I'd actually made in the text, even though I remembered it as being more dismissive of these actors. No, at the time I, I actually, uh, so, so it, it, it was mm -hmm. a sort of a return to that empathy. Um, <clears throat> the so the, the book is about this this uh the worst natural disaster uh up until our present pandemic perhaps um in argentine history uh i think the other comparable ones uh would be the yellow fever in the 19th century you know other uh various cholera outbreaks although they didn't they weren't as devastating in terms of numbers as yellow fever was yellow fever is really the last kind of great comparable epidemic in, in Argentina, you know, with a deaths on a comparable scale. But outside of those public health emergencies, uh, the San Juan earthquake was the worst natural disaster in Argentine history. Uh, and it destroyed the city, which was uh, the capital city um, of a province in the Argentine interior uh, that was not the largest or most prominent or economically dyna dynamic uh, areas of Argentina, but it was uh, one of the two provinces at the center of the wine industry. 
Um, and it also was a province that in the 19th century in particular had been the, the home of one of the kind of great figures of Argentine liberalism and, and of a number of kind of lions of Argentine liberalism. So this place that had a kind of larger than uh, role in the, in the national imaginary um, and a presence on every Argentine table uh, and was leveled uh, in the course of an evening. Uh, with 90% uh, of the houses in the, in the city uh, destroyed and a significant death toll, exact numbers are still as ever uh, disputed and unclear, but certainly between five and 10,000 dead. Mm. So on the scale of kind of, you know, other world historical earthquakes, this is tragic for Argentina, but, you know, not, not comparable with your average you know, 20th century Chinese earthquake or uh, even, you know, some of the worst earthquakes uh, across the border in Chile. But within the Argentine context, it was devastating. Certainly in San Juan, it was devastating. And it uh, marked, it came also at this moment of particular political transition. Uh, a few months after a military coup, at the end of what had become a fairly corrupt, uh, formerly democratic regime, uh, and the earthquake kind of came to symbolize what seemed to be the kind of social failings uh, mm. and uh, you know, <laughs> frailties, fragility uh, of this social order that had been built by kind of outward looking uh, liberal capitalism in the late 19th and early 20th century Argentina. Uh, and the, the concrete disaster itself, the specific disaster itself became uh, a, a national cause in part because the then uh, Secretary of Labor of the military government, Juan Perón, uh, launched a campaign uh, to gather funds and in solidarity with the victims uh, later on the day of the earthquake, uh, and then used that to indeed gather, run a, a sort of massive solidarity campaign, but also to kind of win uh, media prominence and become the sort of spokesperson for a national transformation. Hmm. Uh, and this was the beginning of what would be, uh, you know, a, a massively successful, if controversial, political career, mm -hmm. uh, and also that the ruins would be the were kind of an invitation to transformation. It would be the beginning of what would be a broad political transformation of of uh, the country, and that the rebuilding the city would become a kind of model for uh, a new way of making uh, the nation. So the interesting thing for me in in uh, writing the book was. Everyone knew, knew the story about the earthquake and knew the story of the origins of, of Peron in connection with the earthquake, uh, particularly because it's a week after the earthquake at a concert organized for this campaign in solidarity that Peron meets Evita for the first time, then uh, Maria Eva Duarte. Uh, <clears throat> so this, is, this has this great mythical power as the kind right. of beginning of this national transformation. But... The striking thing in starting to work on the project and, and in writing it was that what, what had survived in the national imagination was that there was a tragedy that Perón uh, acted, showed up on the scene, met Evita, and then the story kind of vanished. Uh, and what had actually happened in the province, what had how this had played out, how the city had been rebuilt, what connection this had with the kind of national political transformation that Perón had led. Uh, had been not the subject of some local studies, but no no serious scholarship, and had been ignored, even though parentism itself was the central topic of Argentine social science uh, and historical production for 40 or 50 years afterwards. So 
what I tried to do in the book was was you know first and foremost just uh, understand bring that story of the disaster and the and the efforts to rebuild and the eventual rebuilding to a larger audience, but also to reckon with why it had been forgotten uh, and how it was how something how this disaster could be both you know invoked to be dismissed uh, and how something this such a traumatic experience could be so central to this kind of very common, often, you know, daily discussed uh, national political transformation and just, and yet left behind. I guess one thing, you know, I, I have been distressed to see some of those same dynamics, of course, playing out in our, in our present day, right? Right. Um, you know, there are, there are ways, I mean, this is, this is the point that everyone made that we all became kind of aware of, like with, with respect to the Spanish flu uh, and the flu pandemic of, you know, 18, 19, 20, that it had always seemed puzzling how such a massive, you know, even, I mean, even today, still larger scale than COVID um, uh, public health disaster had had such a kind of ephemeral presence right. in broader public conversation. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I, we've all been relearning that lesson. Uh, <laughs> right. And it, it's, it's striking to, to, to think about it um, and, and to kind of take those insights uh, back to some of our work and hopefully apply them in kind of thinking about how to respond to things now. Let me just take a moment to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to historian Mark Healy today, and we're just talking uh, there about his book, The Ruins of the New Argentina. So it's a, it's a disaster that, the, that becomes a sort of part of national folklore. It also happens in the middle of World War II and in the middle of a wave of cyclical, um, I think you would call them revolutions in Argentine politics. So, yeah. Yeah. So I want to go a little further with this because I want to know, because what I'm, I'm quite fascinated with the interplay here between sort of historiography, that is like what professional historians do versus the sort of role of the state in crafting a history out of that, that disaster. And I'm asking you that for a very selfish reason, which is I think we're watching that in real time around the world right now with COVID. But yeah. often we look at it one case at a time. And it's it's challenging because the context will always be so specific and contingent. But but now we do have an opportunity. And, and here I'm arguing with myself from 20 minutes ago about the national frame. But here's where I think the national frame is quite helpful, because we could take a look across many different countries, even in just in Latin America right now, and see if this dynamic is playing, which you've described quite well. It's it's a simultaneous making of a new political framework which involves erasure, of course, as always, of an old political framework. So where's the disaster in all of that? <laughs> right. I mean, in the, in the Argentine context, I think that, uh, you know, part of the story in, in, in San Juan with Perón was that the disaster was much more massively present in the making of Peronism as a movement. And what part of the reason that it ends up getting forgotten 
or, or sort of re-regionalized, although it was a very national story, and sort of turned into this kind of provincial thing that's, that people in the province, are only, only those folks are interested in, uh, has to do with the, the role that it played successfully in kind of leading to a national transformation and offering it kind of early examples of some of the things, but much less successfully in actually carrying out that transformation on a local level. So it was sort of a prototype uh, which then read into some of the problems inherent to any rebuilding project. Uh, there was an attempt to uh, entirely move the capital to a new site. Uh, there was an attempt to you know, rebuild in entirely new modes uh, of construction. Was a, this had been a city that was built largely in adobe mud, so an attempt to rebuild everything in cement, which meant building factories, which meant mining, which meant all sorts of uh, things that took some time. That made for a much less glorious short-term history. Uh, and so the, 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 the kind of mundane success of the eventual rebuilding moved it out of a language and the sort of easy evocation of triumphs, whereas the, the initial moment still could retain some of that. Um, but it's, it's, it's so there are, you know, clear connections or analogies with that now, right? One of the things that's striking to me, so the other day, um, <clears throat> well, a year ago, the, the, the disaster, the, the San Juan earthquake happened on, on January 15th, 1944. Uh, a year ago, in the second week of January, a few days later, there was an earthquake in San Juan uh, mm. in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, not January not being in the Southern Hemisphere, the, the worst moment this is the middle of summer. Right. So it uh, doesn't have the sort of, you know, the same kind of, you know, seasonality, right, that we've seen with COVID. Uh, well, the, the seasonality didn't, does not play out the same in summer. So this wasn't a moment of kind of, you know, as bad as January uh, right. 2021 was here. Right. But uh, this was a smaller scale disaster, but it, it did knock down several hundred homes. It was a pretty significant. It was a sort of, uh, I can't remember the exact uh you know, measurement of the earthquake, but it was stronger than the 1944 earthquake. Hmm. Um, fortunately, no one was killed, but there were, as I say, uh, significant destruction. The, so the president, uh, Alberto Fernandez, went to San Juan hmm. uh, and gave a speech uh, about, you know, evoking the earthquake, evoking rebuilding in this giant building, which is the kind of last which was only finished in, in the in the 2000s, but which was uh, the kind of last piece of the rebuilding project um, and is sort of known as such. Uh, <clears throat> so like all of the connections and all of the sort of links to, you know, we, we and now we've, we need to rebuild our nation just as we did then. And, you know, we're facing another challenge, you know, all of that sort of stuff was in there. Uh, and I, I even, I wrote a little piece for a newspaper about that kind of, you know, drawing out some of the connections and contrasts that this might be a moment, uh, to recover things because this was a moment within the pandemic in Argentina when it was already clear that the kind of early tough lockdown, uh, attempts were, were failing, that the government's response was, was inadequate and they needed to kind of find a new strategy. So this was a moment, a possible refounding moment and here he is at the site of this refounding and so forth. And, you know, basically sort of two weeks later, no one remembered anything about it. Um, and, you know, he returned to Buenos Aires and the government kind of continued on that uh, path, which has been, you know, better than the U.S., but not, I would say, successful. Uh, so this past week, 
another colleague uh, wrote a, a long, really wonderful, uh, sort of thoughtful piece in response to the President Fernandez's opening of the year of, of the congressional session, sort of the equivalent of a State of the Union speech, mm-hmm. um, which was really about sort of grievable lives. Uh, And he drew this analogy and kind of drew a whole riff from what I had done in the book about the San Juan earthquake and the the importance of that in the making of Peronism and that the importance had to do with Peron's effectiveness in connecting grief, leadership and transformation uh, and in kind of responding to recognizing mistakes and, and adjusting and kind of building a collective project. And he wanted to draw a contrast with what he, I think, reasonably saw as the failures of uh, Fernandez and of uh, his predecessor, the other Peronist uh, presidents of the of the past uh, decades, Nestor um, Kirchner uh, and Cristina Fernandez Kirchner, in responding to a couple of other tragedies, a, a, a massive nightclub fire in Buenos Aires in the early 2000s uh, and a major um, uh, train wreck that was partly the result of corruption um, uh, a decade ago. And this kind of, and a recent spout of uh, drug poisonings that there have been in Buenos Aires. Hmm. So it was a really, it was an interesting uh, sort of attempt to kind of think about, you know, what lives are grievable, what lives get mentioned, how we think about these things, what kind of project is. But the thing that was really fascinating for me about this article was there was no mention of COVID. Hmm. So even in this context, even as he's talking about, the, and even where there is, uh, you know, there has been a recognizable failure of the government and of the opposition, I mean, you know, a sort of societal challenge, right? That that Argentina, like you know, most other countries of the world, has not been fully up to. That which remains the continuing problem, you know, where there's still hundreds of people yeah. dying from this colleague who's extremely thoughtful about these things. And <laughs> so, I, I feel like there's there's a really interesting question there about why we're failing to find a kind of common language to respond to this. And, and Fernandez himself, the president, was very effective in political communication at the beginning of the pandemic about these sorts of things. And then, you know, as the response, you know, as, as the sort of disease made its way into different cracks in Argentine society and the kind of idea of COVID zero, you know, fell away and so forth, we, we never found another language. Um, yeah. It's just it's it's striking, and it's striking, you know, in the in the context of of this this Ed Young piece and this kind of moment that we seem to have arrived of where we we've sort of lost our ability to really speak uh, in a collectively meaningful way about the trauma towards purpose, right? You know, the 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 thing that had happened after this earthquake, the thing that has happened after various, you know, that we could tell a sort of uh, related story about Chile's history with uh, seismic disaster where you you there's a way of kind of building on that experience of shared tragedy to build strength of the state to build community resilience to right. develop sort of modes of response and you know expert knowledges and and so forth and and we've had some instances of that throughout covid but somehow the experience of these two years has so eroded our capacity to really articulate that as a project um it's just it's it's striking. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to think a little bit more about that because I've been. Uh, it's a pro. I haven't. You've articulated it really well. I mean, I think it's the. And it has something to do with time and disaster, and the and the the fixation of governments, and this is many different governments around the world historically, particularly in the twentieth century, to focus on events. I mean, the way you were talking about yeah. 
the political opportunity of the 1944 earthquake and and how the disaster itself is a scaffold in a sense for something else which emerges out of it and then right. later we get to rebuilding and that's another story okay but um i th- i've been thinking about covid a lot in this in in this way because i wanted to think about covid and authoritarianism more generally yeah and that at some point disasters that the time if they last a long time if their origins are murky or contested and when they then cross if you have a democracy at least which is sharing power or or not a democracy and power changes for other reasons and the disaster somehow goes across those regimes it also becomes complicated and confusing so it just when the disaster becomes a sort of the condition that you live in right then and we see this we see this all the time even president you know Biden. I mean, they still talk about COVID, but I don't hear the kind of. I mean, I hear closure talk. I hear normalcy talk, and you look at the numbers. You're like, guys, I, this is <laughs> these numbers are worse than the first six months. I don't know what you're. We're coming close to a million deaths. We've surely gone past it, but yeah, recorded in the United States. I'm having the same cognitive dissonance here in South Korea. Just had an election last night. The conservative candidate won. We have more cases here. It, it's a lot smaller scale. Right. They've managed it pretty well. But still, this is the worst moment in the whole pandemic in Korea. Right. And um, it's become an issue that has, it's just the condition of living. And so I, I wonder, and I don't know what to make of that necessarily in terms of like what what that means in terms of policy action. Like what can you do? How can you intervene with that, but it's a really interesting observation you're drawing us to that somehow, and I'm putting this on time, but maybe there's other factors that somehow, if it stretches beyond a certain period of time, disasters that we might usually have called, you know, a natural disaster or an emergency like a pandemic, it, it becomes something else. It just becomes something the way people live. I mean, do you see that that connection to authoritarianism in Latin America, or am I making too much of that? I mean, so. Well, two things. I mean, it's it's the what you're what you're saying there about the timing, right? I mean, the, the, like in that that is actually the meaning of endemic, right? I mean, that you know, this, this whole question of like when the thing becomes like endemic in some sense is that. I mean, it's it's the sort of it's the moment when the kind of efficacy of developing a language around shared response fails, <laughs> right? Uh, when you when you when you no longer feel like you can kind of collectively organize or, you know, define the kind of object of intervention, whether it's of kind of community response or of public health strategies or of governmental strategies or what have you, uh, like that, that is one way of thinking of endemicity, right? <laughs> it's just as, as, as resignation, um, uh, you know, as, as sort of, you know, pushing on a string, right? And, and that's what, I mean, obviously, and we see this in the U.S., that this is, that's also a choice. Um, so, on the connection with authoritarianism, I, yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, there's, there's, uh, I mean, you know, there, there's the one side of it, which is always the, you know, the thing that that we all kind of know about disasters, right? That although there are all of these processes of of community organization response that turn out to be the most effective ways of, of <laughs> you know, of, of local response to disasters and all of the kind of spontaneous sense making and and so forth, you know, and, and 
Rebecca Solnit's version that's most optimistic, right? right? But, um, but along with that, there always has been this kind of desire for finding someone to, you know, the, the, I mean, as, as, uh, you know, Giuliani as the 9-11 mayor, um, right. You know, it wasn't that he was any good at leadership. It was just that, you know, he was good at projecting the kind of leadership that certain sectors thought that they needed, you know, in the, the wonderful phrase, you know, a small man in search of a balcony, right? <laughs> so <laughs> truly, truly the, Giuliani. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like I feel so I feel like there's some of that, right? There's something about yeah. the response that certain sectors within society are always going to look for those sorts of responses. So it plays into authoritarianism in that way. Um, and certainly it plays into authoritarianism in that, you know, the, that other strategies of response show limited efficacy. So that heightens it. Um there's also this, you know, there's this, there's this other piece of it that I, I suppose I hadn't fully grasped beforehand, which is the, you know, I mean, we see this most ri- richly in the U.S. or in Brazil, perhaps, um, but worldwide of the kind of language of response to authoritarianism, like, you know, I need my freedom, the anti-vaxxing language and so forth, as a vehicle for very powerful strategies of authoritarianism, right? Um, <laughs> you know, which has this this sort of uh, terrifying, wonderful, recursive quality, um, which we, you know, I, I mean, in, in Brazil, it seems to have run its course, right? The, the you know, Bolsonaro has uh, obviously, uh, to evidence of almost everyone, objectively failed. Um, various other Brazilian institutions, not so much the democratic institutions, the scientific institutions and so forth have stood up to him and you know, are, are producing their own version of vaccine, have managed to get pretty high levels of community vaccination, and within this general horror have somehow built out a response. Um, so in that sense, the sort of authoritarian response has been discredited. But but more broadly, you look across Latin America, uh, and they're still, you know, they're, they're in, in Peru or in Ecuador. Uh, there, there are, you know, lots of spaces where uh, there has been this kind of collapse of the political imagination. There hasn't really been yeah. anything to emerge. I mean, you know, there there are there are more hopeful stories to be told about Chile, um, and uh, to a degree, uh, Colombia. Right? I mean, the, we'll see where things go. But the the kind of time honored solutions of authoritarian response in Colombia have been very ineffective in either uh, responding to COVID or really all the kind of other related social trauma uh, and upheaval that in a way that has really discredited the kind of existing political order. And in, in Chile and Colombia, you see that producing kind of new political possibilities. Um, so it's, you know, it's, a, I mean, yeah. if we look around the continent, it's a, it's a very mixed bag, but certainly uh, the kinds of, kind of community-led responses and sort of NGO-led, you know, root grassroots democracy and things that we that had been somewhat successful in the past and that we might have hoped for more responses out of uh, have, you know, not been the dominant note, shall we say. <laughs> Let me remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Mark Healy. Um, Mark, I'd like to be a little greedy with your time. Can you stay a little bit longer? Sure. I, uh, okay. You never know with a department head what's happening. I know it's <laughs> night, you know. <laughs> we had we had a two-hour meeting today. We, you know, I, I like. <laughs> oh, you you paid in advance. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm keeping I'm keeping you from your from your beer or your your soda. But uh, 
but I wanted to I want to go a little bit further with this because I want to actually I want to think about memory with you a little bit. Yeah. Because um, when I spent a little time in in Chile um, with brilliant colleagues there, like Roberto Morris and um, uh, you know. So the history of disasters was always in, under discussion. Yeah. And and it's earthquakes and and tsunami, of course, and and you know, Manuel Taroni and all of the colleagues there at, at Sigiden um, at the Catholic University. I mean, they're they're constantly working on sort of contemporary, you know, culture of managerialism and engineering as a way to cope with the ongoing threat of disaster in Chile. But you're always just one lunchtime conversation away from the Valdivia earthquake. Right. And 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 the way people talk in intermingled ways about those, as we've been talking about that earthquake, and then and then the state that earthquake and authoritarianism that and Pinochet is always you know that discussion is always there, right? And similar to the way you know conversations with colleagues at in Germany, you may have had a similar um, mm-hmm. you know experience. With, I had a colleague tell me this once over lunch. She said, "Look the." The war, the Holocaust is the disaster. She said the Holocaust is the big disaster. You let any conversation about contemporary disaster management in Germany, refugee crisis, whatever it is, what's going on now in Ukraine, to let people talk long enough and you get to that. Right. And so I'm thinking about that in terms of memory right now, what you were just talking about with COVID mm-hmm. and the, the problem of remembering a disaster in the middle of it. Okay. That's, that makes sense. But I'm deeply worried we won't have the tools to remember it even five years from now, in part for a lot of complicated reasons, the scale right. of it, the global nature of it, but also the downplaying of it intentionally by many governments around around the world. So what can we draw from that struggle over memory in countries like Argentina or Chile, where it's an ongoing struggle, not only to name names and find bodies, but also develop a sort of national right. space for memory? Can we draw anything from that to, to help us now as we think about COVID memorialization? I think it's interesting. You know, I mean, it, we, we were, um, slight detour. Um, as you were thinking about that, I was thinking about, um, I, I was living in New York in 2001. And uh, I remember being struck in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 by the kind of spontaneous emergence of these kind of walls of memorial pictures, right? Um, especially, you know, around Union Square, but there are other places too, right? Where, where Places that became sites of, of memory uh, and which then after some time Giuliani had uh, purged, um, but which were extremely evocative for me of what those memory sites and of that memory work from uh, an Arge- in the sort of post-dictatorship memory, right? Um, it was always, you know, a, a sort of a, a single uh, candid snapshot, you know, looking for the disappeared and so forth. Um, so that that had me thinking, you know, then about this this kind of question of you know, the, the way that memory becomes tangled up in these uh, and and the the dangers of that, right? I mean, it clearly, like this was a disorderly memory to kind of keep in the public space, right? And therefore, there was a need to kind of discipline it, focus it, and, you know, as it turned out, militarize it, right, um, in the response within New York. So in, in thinking about what the, 
you know, certainly all of Latin American societies that were subject to, you know, more or less intense versions of state terrorism. And it came out of the experience uh, with, you know, powerful democratic movements and, and uh, with memory as this really central value of democracy. Um, so you did see, as a result of that being a kind of broader set of practices, you did see some attempts to kind of get those, take those tools and those experiences and apply them uh, early on in the pandemic to thinking about this traumatic experience. Um, but I feel like, uh, and, and so one place where that has really kind of taken off is Brazil, because there, there is a sort of clear political intentionality, right, about, uh, you know, about the, the ways that Bolsonaro ignored or discounted or, you know, subverted attempts to respond to the, to, to COVID, um, you know, and his kind of general sort of politicization, uh, of the public sphere. Uh, and the ways in which sort of resistance um, and, and attempts to at community care, you know, corresponded somewhat with resistance to Bolsonaro and, and, and insistence on the sort of, you know, the longer tradition of Brazilian public health and science um, in ways that may, that, that have yielded some result of that, right? Some reckoning of names, some recounting of names, some sort of politics of memory. So I feel like, that is one place where uh, you can see that uh, and where that may well lead to, you know, if, as things seem to suggest, uh, Lula returns, returns to the presidency, a kind of language of shared suffering. And certainly in, in, in Lula's speeches, there has been, you know, a lot of reference to mm -hmm. that um, that can be turned into some kind of, you know, attempt to, to keep alive this memory and also to turn it into a, a broader intervention to build a more robust system of care and public health and to attend to all of the you know, vast inequalities that were evident before, but have been deepened um, by this experience. Um, in Argentina, uh, I don't know that there's been, it, it's, it's a strange thing because the, there, there's, the national conversation is still kind of dominated by, understandably by uh, some metaphors that draw on the the dictatorship and the and memory struggles after. Yeah. Um, I think part of the problem is that a number of the people who've been, well, one, one narrow problem is that a number of the people who are kind of associated with the government um, and on the left and or connected with the, with the Peronist administration uh, who had been in human rights work were themselves uh, sort of discredited in various ways. I mean, famously uh, one kind of key figure in the human rights movement, um, uh, got him was chosen sort of partly through his own doing for vaccination early on in a kind of VIP vaccination mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, he was, he's in his eighties, like, you know, it wasn't that egregious of a violation. They got to vaccinating everybody else relatively soon, but, you know, the, the idea that you're the sort of champion of the dispossessed and of human rights and you're sort of taking a mm, special first. route to get secret protection right. for yourself um, did not sit well. So there are ways in which some of that, that this kind of older language of care and older language of human rights has been partly or at least some of the leaders of that have been kind of politicized in particular ways and discredited. And so I think there hasn't yet been an emergence of a kind of clear way of connecting to that experience. Um, also because the, you know, in contrast with Brazil, 
I mean, people may have dispute dispute different things about how the government responded, but particularly during the kind of first year or so, like there wasn't actually that much daylight between the government and opposition in terms of how to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's only over time, and and that's had to do with the kind of clumsiness of some things, like this VIP vaccination thing or other stuff. Um, None of which is, but but which mostly has been evidence of a kind of you know failed failed imagination, failed capacity to connect with the citizenship and so forth, more than willful failure. Um, so I don't know. It it, it, yeah. it it'll be interesting to see because but it just feels like it kind of falls away from like a clear larger political meaning. Like it sort of becomes this sort of personal. Um, Kind of isolated personal experience of this broad societal tragedy. Um, I think there is there is a there is important work to be done to try to make sense of that in developing some common response going forward. Um, it'll it'll be interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on the Chilean side because, of course, Chile had uh, experienced this uprising, massive protest and kind of societal insurrection starting in October 2019. And so when the pandemic happened, it kind of hit a society that was that was partly an open revolt, partly under martial law, still processing this thing. Um, and the although the, you know, Piñera's government, the vaccination program is about the only thing that it did well in its <laughs> during Piñera's term. Um, <clears throat> but the fact that it did that well in the middle of what continued to be an ongoing public health tragedy and this moment of just enormous political uh, dissent, struggle, reinvention, um, it'll be interesting to see as now Chile is writing a new constitution, has a new government that's coming to power later this month, um, and and just a much more kind of hopeful vision uh, for the future. Uh, In truth, I haven't seen, you know, even Boric, who's, 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 uh, sort of speeches and, and campaign has really been kind of masterful in capturing the ways that personal experience and, and, and you know, individual suffering has not been accounted for in the Chilean polity. But it hasn't had a particularly strong COVID vector, right? It's, it's COVID has sort of mm-hmm. exemplified these kind of broader problems that go further back. Um, so I think that's also, you know, so if on the one hand, in, in the Argentine case, it's it's like it's, it's kind of fallen out of a larger political scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Chilean case, it kind of reinforces this larger political scheme uh, in creative ways uh, and in ways which might, I think, produce some interesting new kind of memory work and, and political yeah. imagination and hopefully, you know, public health institutions. It's uh, thank you for talking about that. And, and I I was also in New York in, in 2001 and, and, and I wish I knew you then. <laughs> and and, and I, I did not have the knowledge. So the, my visits to Union Square, I was seeing those those forms of memory for the first time. I didn't have the knowledge of the Argentine or the Chilean case with the photo, the candle, the flower. Yeah. Um, you know, this kind of, of language. Um, I'll just a, a little aside. I was telling this story recently to a student. Um, I went looking with Charles Strozier. We went looking around 2004 for whatever the city had had kept of that memorial in Union Square. Because huh. to me, that was the best memorial and it will never be reproduced. It was a spontaneous, it was loving, it was a 
right. informative. It was it was great and um, important. And then the city unceremoniously came along and cleaned it all up one day. And so, but in the city archives of New York, when we went looking, there was a long-suffering archivist there who said, "Yeah, there's some things over here you could look in that file cabinet, whatever." We opened the file cabinet; it was full of flowers. <laughs> You know, the little bouquets you buy at the bodega. Yeah, yeah. They're all yeah. just dried and crumbly, just <laughs> thrown in there. That's the nature of the archiving. But I, it, yeah. mo- it, mo- it moved me. I mean, I was like distraught by that. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is, you know, an important moment in New York's history. It's sitting here in this file cabinet. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, I'm just about, you know, pulling that out and feeling things falling, you know, it's yeah. incredibly powerful. Yeah. I, and, but the other, the, the, to what you were talking about before, I mean, I think this is, um, to me, this is, again, I think this is productive for us to, to work with this and think about this, because part of the challenge of, of the memory of life under a police state and yeah. crimes against humanity, a lot of that becomes sort of judicial. It becomes sort of focused on a criminal justice process, a fact-finding process, and that becomes sort of the, that's where money flows. And that becomes a becomes a focus where people can say, okay, we need to do the memory work here because that's part of a, a justice process. Um, but sometimes that focuses people's attention on 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 bad guys and on this idea that justice can be attained through you know something that happens in a courtroom, and it it's unsatisfying, I think, to many people because it leaves out the sort of just broader era of suffering. Yeah, and the fact that it's shared across political party and and across a long time and COVID in some ways is the opposite problem. It's like I mean we can point to injustices certainly, but it will be hard to ever bring Bolsonaro or Trump up on some kind of charges, um, right? You know, for crime against humanity with COVID, whether or not you think they should be or not. And so because that part of the process will always be missing, then we just have to rely on the other part, which is just well, here's an era of suffering. Document yeah. it. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Good luck. Yeah. What's what's the what's the narrative thread other than pain? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're we should close up. There's one other thing I just wanted to ask you. You've been writing about Mapuche um, history and indigenous history in, in mm-hmm. um, Argentina. And I wanted to just get an update. Have you been following the what's been going on with the Mapuche in in COVID? I mean, there have been a few news stories here and there. I haven't been able to follow it very well. Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been right. So, so on the one hand, right. So there's a sort of there's an Argentine story. There's a there's a Chilean story, right? Which um, <clears throat> Mapuches have uh, a, a kind of you know larger political presence. I mean, they're just like a kind of great specter haunting the Chilean state, and you know, sort of continued victims of uh, really the persistence of authoritarian practices. Uh, in um, in democracy, right? I mean, the kind of states of siege, including you know, very recently. Um, on the Argentine side, uh, there there is a there is a quite active movement. There has been kind of there have tended to be kind of more schools, more public health, more. Not that there aren't also violences, and and under the last government, there were several sort of persecutions and various legal cases and some killings. Um, <clears throat> But there has been kind of more integration into kind of community institutions and access to things. Uh, the kind of area of Patagonia, which, you know, where, where you have most of the sort of Pehuenche, Tehuelche, Mapuche populations uh, has broadly 
you know, more public health infrastructure and so forth with, you know, all kinds of limits. Um, so on the Argentine side, it's sort of more like what the story has been in Patagonia generally. So you find uh, there have been certainly like in the kind of poorer neighborhoods, which are heavily Mapuche of Bariloche, um, there have been, uh, you know, you've seen greater patterns of infection. There have been, you know, all, all the sort of uh, processes. But um, broadly, it's been kind of part of a broader Argentine story. And in the on the Chilean side, it's been connected with lots of political insurgency related to, I mean, earlier things, but then have continued after October 2019. The government has reimposed a state of siege a couple of times. Um, and, you know, there, there, have been, there were numerous killings of Mapuche youth during the insurrection. So what, what we see... I think is less. I mean, you know, there you haven't you haven't seen the kind of level of difference in uh, vulnerability that we saw, you know, with indigenous populations in the U.S. early on in the pandemic, right? Um, certainly greater among indigenous populations in, in both Argentina and, and Chile, but not quite on the scale of the U.S. But what you have seen is a kind of really interesting kind of political imagination, you know, as also is in the case of indigenous communities in the U.S around kind of community health and so forth. And so one of the things I think that'll be really striking to see is that, right, the questions of Mapuche rights are really, sen and Mapuche language, right, I mean, from the, the president of the, uh, of the Chilean Constitutional Convention uh, to down to other representatives who have been uh, elected and really taken the kind of questions of indigenous sovereignty, and indigenous rights to the kind of part of discussions uh, in the new Constitutional Convention. So, It'll be striking to see, you know, how these experiences of exclusion, these kind of demands, you know, for autonomy, but also for rights and access to the welfare state um, play out in uh, the kind of the ongoing constitutional process now, you know, nearing its tentative end. Um, I think that's really kind of one of the promising things is, is the, the ways in which indigenous identity has been mobilized for, you know, has been a kind of great energy, right? I mean, Famously, like a number of the pictures of the kind of insurrection in October, November 2019 were the kind of flying the Mapuche flag yeah. in the center yeah. of, uh, of Santiago and clearly kind of connecting with that and reconnecting with that indigenous street, both for those who are members of indigenous communities and for the kind of broader Chilean population who have kind of come to think differently about indigeneity within Chile is a really interesting um, fruit of these days. We'll see. Well, we should wrap up. I just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although we are running COVID calls all times of the day and night right now. <laughs> and uh, the next uh, COVID calls episode, actually, you can catch at um, 10 a.m. on March 10th, uh, which I'll be speaking with a physician from Ukraine. So please do join me for that. It'll be a little early in the morning, U.S. East Coast time, but I'll make sure to post um, information about that in the next couple of hours. I just got confirmation that's going to happen. And I uh, want to thank my guest, Mark Healy. This is what I needed. A long talk with a great historian. That's what I needed today. <laughs> and you really delivered it. Thanks, Mark, for your work um, and for this time. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.